Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined again by renowned critic and playwright Terry Teachout for a further conversation about classic Hollywood. Today we turn to film noir, to what I think is the most beautiful film noir, but other people might not even think is a film noir. We will get to discussions about that. Laura, the Otto Preminger 1944 movie starring Dana Andrews and Gene Tierney, Quick heads up, Dana is the man, Jean is the woman. This was the 40s. <laughs> and Clifton Webb, who was nominated for an Oscar for it, who had returned to the movies after decades, and who plays a delightful, wicked man, a very sarcastic man, Hollywood's answer to H.L. Mencken. And there are so many other things to talk about. Joseph Lachelle's Oscar-winning photography, Otto Preminger's dramatic staging, David Raxin's beautiful score, and of course the tune for which Johnny Mercer provided the lyrics, which has become a standard and especially beloved of jazz musicians. So I expect that on all these issues, Terry Teachout will have far more enlightening things to say than I have. And so thank you, sir, for joining me. It's good to have you here again. It's my pleasure. I don't know how enlightening I'll be, but there's certainly a lot to talk about whenever one talks about Laura. Laura is a mystery, a romantic mystery. It is a traditional whodunit, which means that the denouement comes when the identity of the murderer is revealed. The action of the film begins immediately, I think the day after we are led to believe that Laura Hunt, an advertising executive in New York, has been killed with a shotgun. Dana Andrews plays Lieutenant McPherson, the uh, police detective who is investigating the murder. One of the suspects is Waldo Lidecker, a critic, a radio personality and columnist who was Laura's patron, a much older man who discovered her when she was quite young and boosted her to success in her profession. Also suspected is Shelby, played by Vincent Price, her fiancé, who is a man without means and a man of whom Waldo Lidecker is immensely suspicious. And that's how the plot works out, because we discover a bit less than midway through the film that Laura is in fact alive and that nobody knows this. In the course of investigating the murder, before he discovers that she's still alive, Lieutenant McPherson becomes obsessed with Laura, particularly with a portrait of her that has been painted and hangs in her home. And he essentially falls in love with the portrait, with his idea of the woman. To say more would be to give too much away. So I'll leave it with that, except that Lieutenant McPherson has the problem of trying to figure out exactly who killed whom and who got killed. That's as close as I can come to summing up Laura succinctly. It plays a lot more simply and straightforwardly than it synopsizes. In fact, the screenplay, which is based on a best-selling novel, has three credited writers and uncredited contributions by a fourth writer. Even though its origins are complex, it's a beautifully wrought piece of storytelling that comes out clear as glass. You know exactly where you are. What you don't know is who did it. And that's what makes it such a good mystery. Yes, it's remarkable how straightforward the movie plays on two levels. First of all, Otto Preminger had a delight in staging it as for the stage so that you get shots of two, three or more actors and the camera does not give you reaction shots. There's very little editing done in a cinematic mode. It's more intended to present to you rooms, most of the movies in interiors, where you see people in their natural milieu, in their parlors. These are all wealthy New Yorkers, 
but at the same time in very unusual circumstances. So the people are both at home and not at home. There is something uncanny in the way their homes become a stage for emotions they're trying to hide, for ugly truths they are trying to hide, and for suspicions that move from one character to another and that help us follow the plot along as we move from scene to scene. And at the I same think it's, it's very interesting, Titus, that you have used the word stage repeatedly, uh, because... I- one might almost guess, if you didn't know it, that this film was uh, the first important piece of film work by a man who had already had a significant career as a stage director. Uh, and it strikes me, I've, I've done some stage directing, and of course I'm a drama critic, it strikes me that if you know this, the film makes more sense as a work of art. It doesn't feel like a staged play. It doesn't have that uh, confined, constrained feeling. But it is quite clearly the work of a man who thinks in terms of framing the stage picture that you will see. All the people are in it. We see them head on from one perspective. uh, And they are allowed to tell the story. Uh, It's not not a showy piece of work. And unless you've seen a lot of Preminger's later films... I don't think you're going to look at it and say, oh, who's the director of this film? What, where, from whence cometh these unusual stylistic touches? It is a, it's a stylist style, to use a phrase that Truman Capote, uh, I think, coined. Uh, and that's part of what makes it so effective, I believe. Yes, that's that's a very good word for it, stylist style. When once you see the movie a couple of times, you begin to appreciate how complete it is, how well-rounded, how things fit together part for part. But anytime you go through it or just watch a few scenes, you're simply playing along with the typical Hollywood invisible cut manner of editing. You just follow along with the story on the strength of the mystery and the character's psychological reactions to it, which are all of them plausible, none of them showy. And, and of course, it also helps that the sets are so lavishly designed. They're not just a luxurious New York. They're also detailed enough that you can believe such and such a character lives here. And so you go along with everything. Things that twist yes, your it, eye, but never break you out of the tension of the scene. We first see Waldo Lidecker having lunch at what, if, if you were ever there in its uh, golden days, you immediately recognize was the Algonquin Hotel's uh, uh, dining room. And I I spent a fair amount of time there when I was first in New York. And when I first saw Laura, I thought, well, this must have been shot on location. No, it wasn't. It was built as a studio set. But uh, great trouble was gone to uh, to make you feel that you were where you you are supposed to think you are. Uh, And this is important because uh, although he doesn't look like his, the character after whom he's modeled. We know, if you've read Vera Kasperi's novel, you know that in fact, Waldo Lidecker is quite literally based on a living person, Alexander Wolcott, uh, who did all of the things that Lidecker does uh, in the film. He was a, first a drama critic, then a columnist, uh, a, a quite successful radio personality, and somebody who had a, an avocational interest in murder who wrote about it a lot, who liked to tell the stories of great murders and great trials, who was waspish, who was effeminate, uh, and uh, uh, Webb, who of course knew him. Everybody knew Wilcock if you were in the, the theater business. Uh, although Webb looks nothing like Wilcott, who was quite 
quite plump, uh, quite soft looking. And, and uh, Clifton Webb is slim and spare, like the dancer he was when, in his younger years on Broadway. Uh, he catches the waspishness, the nastiness, uh, the the pointed effeminacy, effeminacy with, with perfect elan. Uh, it's a spectacular performance, but it is based on a real person. Uh, I did not know that. So, f sir, tell us f first of all about the novel. Let's get to the, the origin of this story. Well, when you see Lara for the first time, you will notice that it has one of those main titles that shows the dust jacket of a book. Always done when in Hollywood a film is being made out of a bestseller that was extremely widely known. Today, Laura the novel is forgotten, but in the mid-40s it was immensely popular. It was written by a woman named Vera Caspery, a female mystery writer, a very particular kind of genre. The film was so successful that it supplanted the novel. One could get it, but nobody read it. Until two or three years ago, when the Library of America published a two-volume omnibus called Women Crime Writers, edited by a friend of mine, Sarah Weinman, and the lead-off novel is Lara. That was the first time I had ever read it. And it's enormously illuminating in all sorts of ways. To begin with, it's a good book. It's quite readable in its own right. And while the film is unquestionably based on it, it is not based literally on the film. To tell you a bit about the novel, it's in four parts, each of which has a separate first-person narrator. The four narrators of Laura are, in order, the four principal characters of the film. Waldo Lidecker, Detective McPherson, Shelby, the fiancé, and then finally, Laura Hunt herself. The plot is simplified and compressed, as is necessary with a, a film. Laura's not an especially long film, but it follows the action of the book pretty closely. A few of the most memorable lines in the script come straight from the book. My favorite one is when um, Lidecker asks McPherson if he's ever been in love, and McPherson replies, a doll in Washington Heights got a fox fur out of me. That's straight from the book. There are two very significant differences worth mentioning here. The first one, in the book, it is quite clear, not only that Waldo Lidecker is modeled after Alexander Wolcott, but that he is homosexual. In no time is this said, but whereas in the film it's left ambiguous, as was required uh, in Hollywood by censorship, uh, it's impossible to read the novel without realizing not only that Waldo is gay, but that his gayness is presented not as normal, but as a pathology, one which, and I won't be more explicit here, but connects up with the denouement of both the novel and the film. The second is that Laura emerges much more clearly in the novel than she does in the film. In the film, we don't meet her until, I think, roughly somewhere between a third and halfway in. And while she's performed so beautifully by Jean Tierney that you feel that she's fully realized, the fact is that on paper, in the film, in the screenplay, she's a stick figure, a person for whom other people speak. And because she narrates the entire last section of the novel in first person, including its climax, she emerges much more clearly, not as the one-dimensional woman in the picture, but as a fully individual person of no small complexity. That's one of the many reasons why the novel is worth reading, whether or not you've seen the film, even after you've seen the film. It's a high-class uh, romantic murder mystery. It's an awfully good book. The film is a separate art object, which has its own goals and its own means. 
it's most interesting to compare the two, but you don't have to have read the book to get the film or vice versa. Uh, when I first read that book three years ago, I was startled by how good it was and by how separate and individual it was and how completely Laura comes across, how fully realized she is. It's one of the things I like best about the book. That's pretty good praise. I will look for it myself because it's a movie I've seen many times, must be close on a dozen now, and I had not heard there was a novel up till now. I was that mesmerized by the movie itself. Of course. And of course, you make a very good point that in the movie, Laura doesn't do much and she doesn't say much. The other characters get far more of the action and the dialogue. Laura is distinctive because she is beautiful. And lovable also, because as we discover, other three male characters all fall in love with her. She is the object of their attention, something who is reflected in their eyes in the film. In the novel, she is her own woman. That's a big difference. Yeah, the movie is not just a beautiful noir, it's a noir about the beautiful, about everything from what we call platonic love, that is to say falling in love with a story or an idea or a picture, or all three in this case, to the effect that beauty has on people by way of prestige, in the case of Waldo Lidecker, who is not just a snappy dresser, but he is a play-act aristocracy. He is the American version of an aristocrat, that is to say a man shrouded in the beautiful, who uses his, uh, the, the superiority of his speech and of his social position to shield himself from the rest of America, to put it very briefly, and who at the same time, because of the beauty of his speeches, is, uh, is, has America's ear. Which makes it all the more interesting that he is brought face to face through this murder investigation with a quintessentially, I won't say working class, but a regular guy, American, Lieutenant McPherson, who is played by Dana Andrews, a, 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 a great underrated American screen actor, uh, who was well known for playing characters like this. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it, from the very first scene onward, we are asked to contrast uh, Waldo Lidecker's personal elegance and, and hauteur with the down-to-earth qualities of, of uh, uh, Lieutenant McPherson, the guy who uh, gave a fox furs to a doll in Washington Heights. Uh, and uh, we're, we are invited to, to, to decide for ourselves which one of these people is better. Yes, and you see everything from the kinds of suits they wear. So also with the third man, Shelby, uh, played by Vincent Price, the kinds of suits he wears, if you look at them, you t can tell immediately from fabric to cut to fit to what social class and what kind of character uh, in relation to that class these people come from. And the, uh, the, as you said, we start with this relationship between the American everyman, who is himself beautified. Dane Andrews was a handsome man. He carries himself with confidence throughout the movie. And he's the only man in the movie who, except for perhaps two scenes, is under control. He has, uh, he shows up a certain view of the detective of the American urban man. Uh, he has a bit of stoicism in him. He doesn't make much of his own story, although he has done heroic things. He doesn't make much of himself. In fact, he likes to be underrated because it allows him to be clever. His cleverness is invisible, unlike the cleverness of Waldo Lidecker, which is all on the surface, you could say. 
he makes which, a point of showing say, his superiority. Yeah. Well, Dana Andrews is, is, is an extremely good choice for this role. Andrews was himself an actor of considerable subtlety, but it, 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 so subtle that it's not obvious at all. He has that quality that we so often see in the best American film actors, which is a kind of doubleness, a sense that something is being concealed. In fact, Dana Andrews came from a dirt, dirt poor family in the, the Deep South. Uh, he, he was, because of his good looks, he was able to make his way up the food chain in Hollywood. Uh, he was beset with self-doubts of all kind, which undermined his confidence. Ultimately, he became an alcoholic and came close to destroying his career with that. Uh, and so even though the man we see on screen seems confident, seems competent, we have a sense that there is more to him than that, that it, that it's perfectly possible that this regular guy, this self-confident, competent man could become obsessed with a woman in a painting whom he has never seen in the flesh. You believe it? Yes, as you have suggested already, he has moments where he admits in his hard and somewhat self-deprecatory humor that women have played with him before. Yes. He doesn't try to seem invulnerable or blind to the charms of women, but he, he underplays the extent to which he is romantic. It's only in the latter half of the movie that we begin to see uh, how, how deep this is and what effect it has on him. We are allowed in only one scene to see him in a vulnerable position where he's drinking himself to sleep because he can't make heads or tails of things. And uh, it's uh, even that is actually an understated scene. Not much is made of what's going on, but because we've been following him and then gradually getting closer to him and beginning even to admire him somewhat, it, it, it hits you when you see it that there, this guy's in a lot of trouble that he's not letting out. And uh, then, of course, his encounters with Laura all come under the, the shadow of this passion. What is this guy really about? At first, he just seems like a guy who's much cleverer than people can tell. Waldo Lydecker thinks he's a cop like all other cops. These are lower-class people, Irishmen. He looks down on them, and so he just reads the statement he's already given. But this cop starts uh, talking it back to him because he's done his homework. The next thing he does is to show you just how much homework he's done. He's been reading through Lydecker's columns and noticed that a murder startlingly like Laura's murder was once talked about in his column and uh, he, he even knows the case that it's supposed to refer to. It's so, And then we see him with his little baseball game that he says keeps him calm because it's all about control. That is right. about control of his nerves and balance. So th these, he, th this intelligence is concealed and the hard work he puts into his job is concealed. It only shows up at moments when he feels it might suit him to show it. He's using let's it go, for his advantage. Let's go back a little way in what you said. If Laura is a film noir, and that's a, a, that is an if question, one of the things that makes it so is that uh, McPherson, who is in some ways the central character of the film, although he doesn't have the showiest role, is a man who on some level fears women. Uh, to, If I may quote from another prominent film of this genre, he is afraid that they will make the sap of him. 
And he is led, as this film progresses, to suspect and to fear that Laura Hunt, far from being a victim, is in fact a perpetrator. Uh, and that's a terrible fear for him because he's fallen in love with her. Uh, that is an extremely noir-like situation, just as McPherson himself is a noir-like character, uh, a man who may be a, a film noir chump and who is being played by Dana Andrews, who isn't really known as a noir actor, but in fact was quite good at that, uh, was, was very much at ease in that kind of setting. Uh, so you have, you have at least some of the elements uh, for a, a quintessential film noir are falling into place here. Yes, and to to maybe add a few more uh, touches to this picture that uh, film noir has to do with the darkness of passions that we don't usually recognize. It looks at what we think of as progress, first of all, the greatest city in the world, New York, and modernity, everything from new tech to new manners, new ideas, new habits of the heart. And it shows that it's not the everyday neglectable home that we just live in and walk past. That in fact, the dark passions of the soul are fully at work in our cities if we but start to look slightly askew at things and begin to notice what we usually take for granted. The behind the polish and eloquence of Waldo Lidecker lies a passion to control. He, he has created Laura, he thinks, not just by being her patron and helping her get on in the advertising business, but by creating her taste, her wardrobe, everything about her as though she's a work of art, his art, and that he has a kind of power over her. It's uh, all of a sudden the auteur and, and elegance begin to look much grimmer and, as, as we would say today, more political. They're about power. On the other hand, with Dana Andrews, we see this sort of stoic, self-controlled, self-deprecatory man has reasons to seek self-control and to seek a self-deprecatory kind of humor, to remind himself that he's playing with his own heart and that there is much danger, as in his past, so also in his future. And then, of course, the, there's the Vincent Price character, who is the most ridiculous of the bunch, but in another sense, he's the most American. He's a guy on the make. He's trying to succeed. He's not doing it in the moral American way, by hard work. He is, in fact, uh, insouciant. He is shameless about how much he shuns work, and that he is, in fact, a kept man. But he he's also sexually equivocal, which is one of the many things that makes this film so interesting. He's being played almost campily by Vincent Price. Yes. And, of course, it's a great understatement to say that Clifton Webb is playing Lidecker in a sexually equivocal way. Uh, and there, there is, a, sex, there is a, a supporting female role. We haven't even mentioned uh, where there is definitely a hint of lesbianism as well. Um, let's, let's pause just a moment here. We've reached, I think, a good point to talk about what a, how a classic film noir works, one that fits the definition right down the scoreboard. Uh, for me, these are films uh, centered on men uh, who are forced to make a moral choice because they, they run into a temptress, a woman who is beautiful, who is suspect, and who lures them into making the wrong decision 
one that either destroys their life or the woman's life or both of them. Uh, these films are tragic. Uh, they, by definition, end tragically. Even if one of the principal characters gets out alive, uh, his, his or her life has been damaged, possibly beyond repair. This is how these films work. Laura is not a tragic film. Uh, it's a film in which something bad happens and somebody gets caught and is revealed as having done it. Uh, but it is also a film in which the characters with whom we have been led to identify, uh, so to speak, again, I don't want to give it away, but they get away with it. Uh, and uh, so it's romantic in an unshadowed way that true film noir is not. A, a friend of mine has coined and likes to use the phrase noir adjacent to describe films like this. They have many of the features of film noir, but they don't quite fit the genre. And I think, I think that's really a good way of describing Laura. Uh, it's really in many ways a daylight film, although some of its key scenes take place at night. Uh, it is a film about deception. It is a film about obsession. But it is not ultimately a tragic film, uh, except for uh, the person who did it. Um, I think it's it's interesting to talk of it in the, the film noir category, possibly illuminating, but a little bit tricky. That's that's where I would that's where I would come down in the end. Yes, I think you're right. It's uh, our previous conversation, Vertigo. That's far more of a film noir than Laura itself. It is again noir adjacent. I guess we would ultimately say it doesn't fit all of the uh, noir requirements, but uh, but but it's far closer than this precisely because it centers on its tragedy and is unrelenting about it. What's right, it's, it's set in what Eddie Muller calls the dark city. Uh, and what one of the things I really like about Laura is that while it isn't, we discover that it really is, that this beautiful, uh, fabulously well-appointed city of, of wealthy, powerful people, is in, it, it has sewers running through it. I guess Raymond Chandler might put it that way. Uh, just, just as Los Angeles does, so too does New York. And, uh, just because you have a, a beautiful Park Avenue apartment full of art doesn't mean that there might not be something terribly wrong in your soul. Yes. And the, so it, this noir sensibility and the focus on the moral choice of a character who is not in an obvious way but in a deep way principled and therefore faced with an essential conflict this also allows it to look at this uh, gay rich world with more than a little skepticism not just yes. the usual american democratic skepticism but deepening in it morally by fighting against success worship by fighting against power worship, by refusing to equate goodness with glamour. Not just detachment, but I think some real anger as well. Uh, because as we are never allowed to forget for very long, something quite terrible has happened in this film. It is not what we think it is, but what has really happened is really just as terrible as, as what we thought had happened. Uh, there is a corpse at the center of this film, somebody who died painfully and shockingly. And uh, uh, you don't go for very many uh, scenes in this film without being reminded of that fact, that it is, it is not just a, a, a clockwork murder mystery, but a flesh and blood murder mystery 
where somebody got it in the face with a shotgun. Yes, exactly. I mean, what a way to get to a mystery. You cannot identify the victim because she was blasted in the face. You just know it was a young woman. It's It, it really hits you and it comes again and again in the plot so that you understand what the moral stakes are here. The real person has been sent, uh, you know, uh, to hell. It's, it's a terrible, terrible way of... Uh, revealing what darkness there is in human souls among all this beauty there is also terror and just like the sophistication of the plot hinges on the way it manages to deliver happy and unhappy ends in accordance with our ideas of justice so also the moral drive of the plot or the moral truth of the noir genre is the dialectic of respectability and innocence all these people are respectable, but they are not innocent. And throughout the story, we see more and more up to a, a, a morally very compromising and very enlightening at the same time, the Nouveau we see that respectability prefers violence to innocence and is really about hiding that violence so that people can go on with life instead of doing justice to innocence that has been violated yeah. and this in the is... dark city of noir we're all tainted the difference is some of us know it and some of us don't exactly and and the people who make make it their life's purpose to seem that they are pure are the ones perpetrating violence on the innocent under guise of respectability and uh, this, I believe, is what David Lynch learned from Laura and why he made his own Laura, Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks and his own detective, in that case, Special Agent FBI, Special FBI Agent Cole, uh, searching for the truth about the violence done to Laura and searching for the ugly truth within a city and an America he loves, down to the apple pie and coffee, of course. It's all, it's lovable America, but there's also evil there. We do want to live respectable lives, but we begin to learn that within this circle of respectability, horrifying things have been perpetrated, not by our fault, not with our consent exactly, but we have been oblivious to it. And there's a question as to whether we're willing to face the evil or we want to hide from it and to pretend that we are in fact pure. Nothing bad could happen with us. In fact, if anybody's at fault, it's Laura herself, whatever happened. Because it's certainly not part of our world that bad things should be done to beautiful, innocent people. Yeah. And this dialectic of innocence and respectability and the way it focuses the question on violence done to the innocent and our own moral duties and our political duty to do justice makes the noir not just an entertainment or, or even just a psychological study. It also shows how, how it belongs to the tradition of American democracy of trying to do right, trying to save victims, trying to be protective as these heroes like Dana Andrews' McPherson does in Laura. Let's go back to Andrews' casting for a moment. One of the interesting effects of the way that the golden age studio system, Hollywood, made stars and casted, cast films, is that we see the actors as, or the, the, their personae as in a way standing above the film. The films are a totality that defines them. When we see Dana Andrews, if you've seen a lot of old movies, uh, you don't just think of him as, as uh, uh, Lieutenant McPherson. You also think of him as Fred Derry in uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. 
uh, probably his greatest film performance, in which he plays a war hero, somebody who has come back to the States after the war uh, to a life that turns out to be unsatisfactory, uh, is grievously hurt by what happens to him there and is able to, to make his way out of this potentially tragic situation. But, uh, you know, obviously, Laura was made before the best years of our lives. Nobody was thinking of it back then. Nobody really knew who Dane Andrews was. But now when we see him, we also see Fred Derry standing in the shadows as well. And uh, our sense of who the Dana Andrews character is in all of the films that he plays is colored by our knowledge of his other work. Uh, he really does have an everyman quality to him. He's, he's really one of the underrated studio system actors. Um, uh, he didn't do enough quite enough first-rate films to be properly regarded. Uh, his own career was short-circuited by his alcoholism. But he had real acting intelligence, and he had real intelligence. He was a very thoughtful man. Um, and Laura shows him at his youthful best as someone whom we want to admire, someone whom we want to idealize, and so somebody about whom we are disturbed when he realized that he's skating along the edges of obsession and very possibly an obsession that will lead him to do something terribly wrong. Um, uh, he's, I am Jean Tierney is a beautiful woman. She was a fine actor. Uh, we all love her and Laura, uh, but this movie is about Dana Andrews uh, and in a different way about Clifton Webb. Yes, and uh, it is Clifton Webb who notices this. He he has the strange knowledge that love gives you, jealousy, suspicion, the ability to pick up hints that correspond to, to, to secrets of your own heart. He's the one who notices that Dana Andrews is beginning to fall in love with Laura, and he, he makes this terrible remark. He says, you're falling in love with a corpse? To humiliate the man and to try to, to bring him down, to make him perhaps lose his mind or at least lose his nerve, and to bring the... him to the same level as as Waldo Lidecker himself. That's part of what's so interesting about this film. Uh, a, a friend of mine who is a film teacher re recently ran Laura for his class and mentioned that they all take for granted that Waldo Lidecker is gay. Uh, whereas in 1944, uh, an ordinary viewer of this film would not necessarily have read him that way because people weren't nearly as uh, knowledgeable about homosexuality as, as they are now. Uh, nobody had gaydar back then unless you lived in a certain kind of milieu. Uh, and so without back then, without quite knowing what was going on, you are seeing a film about two men, one of them unusual and one of them an everyman, who are circling each other uh, uh, in a kind of a, a minuet of, of growing, deepening obsession with a third party, a woman. Uh, that's a very rich and complicated situation out of which to spin a plot. Yes, it is. And of course, in, in a sense, the fact that people then didn't even know that Clifton Webb was homosexual, uh, it, right. it, ma it made the film richer. It makes the psychology deeper and your, your own interest in the story is more uh, 
varied and uh, sends you down more alleys searching for answers yes. if you uh, if you live with that ambiguity so in a sense perhaps we're too smart for our own good in respect of this movie at this point we have to somehow retrieve a bit more naivety a bit more, more... Well, let's take a moment to belabor the obvious clifton webb was a really good actor uh, people didn't know that when Lara came out. Uh, he had basically spent the last uh, 20, 30 years of his career on the stage in musical comedy, of all things. He is the man who created the song Easter Parade for the stage. There's a recording of him singing it. Uh, he was a, a dancing man, and uh, suddenly he turns up in a film playing a prissy, venomous, yet inexplicably charismatic a drama critic, uh, radio personality. Uh, and he turns out to be a, both a fabulous scene stealer, he's that kind of actor, but also somebody whom you can believe is a complex, divided, and ultimately tortured character. That's real acting. Uh, Clifton Webb is not just uh, doing a star turn. He is a character star. That's what he became after this film. He became a character star. But in Lara, and at certain other times in his career, but above all here, he is showing us what a real actor does when he's given a part of real complexity. Uh, it is a performance that deserved that Oscar nomination. Uh, it, not all performances that ought to make you a star do make you a star. But this one did, and it should have, and it should always be remembered for that. Yeah. I, uh, uh, at some point after first seeing Laura, I saw Sitting Pretty, the 1948, I think it is, movie, where Clifton Webb plays Lynn Belvedere. This turned into a series of movies, as happened then, where he plays a important, sophisticated writer who goes incognito in suburban America as a nanny. Yeah. And he uh, brings everything from yoga to... Uh, principles of child rearing that are quite aristocratic to suburban America and the lovely Maureen O'Hara and uh, and everybody recognizes at that point how attractive this character is to America how in a, how strange he is how how much of a foreigner but how literally he fits in the suburban family home somehow he's also an American position it's a charming film and and once you've seen him do that you realize that there were there are a lot more arrows in his quiver. I mean, my God, this is the man who played John Philip Sousa, uh, yes. uh, who played Frank Gilbreth in Cheaper by the Dozen. And uh, again, you buy him in these films. He is a, I, he's a good actor. He's more, yes. than, more than just a personality. He's a good actor. And uh, another noir touch, uh, Laura uh, uses flashbacks for its characterization and for giving you the backstory. And, and, and there's, there's a fabulous scene, a fabulous restaurant scene. Waldo Lidecker takes McPherson to his and Laura's restaurant and regales him with stories of Laura over dinner and wine. And as we snap out of these interesting stories, because how often do you hear about a guy who, who, uh, who makes it in, gets it into his head to create the woman of his dreams and who actually does it? It's quite stunning. But he comes out of it and he has to say things like, Oh, I, you'll never understand. And then to, to, to show off a suddenly tiredness, vulnerability, uh, a, a certain awareness of his own failure. 
the fact that he has become his own narrator forces him to reflect on his life and to figure out how did he come to this sorry pass of course when you see the second the, the movie the second time around this is far more emotionally charged because now you know all the story but even the first time around you realize that this proud haughty man who heaps scorn on everything he touches is also in some desperate way vulnerable he tried to make a beauty that would stand that would be perfect and that would love him back and he has to face the fact that in all of these ways he has failed he can't even expect that that this lower class workaday detective can understand his turmoil but he feels the need to share anyway that's a great scene and it leads me to ask a question for which i don't have an answer uh and which nevertheless goes to the heart of of what how studio system films work in hollywood and that is, does Laura, the film, really have an auteur? It is signed by Otto Preminger, not just as the director, but also as the producer, which means that he had an enormous amount of creative control on it. On the other hand, it has three screen, screenplay writers and an uncredited fourth, Ring Lardner Jr. It is based on a novel from which it draws most of its essential elements and its character, its style. Um, it has uh, extraordinarily fine photography credited to Joseph Lachelle, although Lucien Ballard is, is apparently played a significant role in, in the cinematography for the film. It's gorgeously designed, uh, and although we haven't talked about it yet, we're going to. It has a musical score that is very important to its total effect. Um, is this really a film by Otto Preminger? Or is it one of those miraculous uh, uh, collective artistic experiences that simply emerges from the genius of the system? One for whom saying that it is by Otto Preminger is an oversimplification, one that, that, that fails to convey how it works and what it means. As I say, I don't have an answer to that. Um, I think uh, you, when you look at the Preminger's total body of work, certain kinds of stylistic aspects and preoccupations do emerge and you start to see it as a Preminger film. But there are a whole lot of other people working on that assembly line, not least those cast members, uh, all of whom uh, contribute vitally to the effect of the film. Uh, uh, I, I don't, whoever waved the magic wand, the results are magical. Uh, but I don't think the only hand on that wand was that of Otto Preminger. Yes, I think you're right that you can recognize the movie as an Otto Preminger movie if you know enough about his movies, but there are things that simply weren't under his control decisions. He didn't agree with, uh, he didn't want Raxin to do the score. He didn't want a Raxin score. He, you know, he took over production, on the other hand, right? He was not the original director. So there are, in all these ways, it escaped his control practically. But even beyond that, as, as you said, there are contributions to this movie that don't really fit uh, with what we know from other Preminger movies in as much as we can establish that. And the, the photography, for example, plays very much against the stage-like character of, of the setup for shots and for the interplay of characters. And it, it adds all, not, not as much as the score, certainly, but it adds a, a great amount of tension and, uh, and and it allows you to see when once you pay attention to the camera work itself just how important it is for giving depth to adding 
shadow to character to uh, allowing you to to begin to see a character now in such a way now in such another way so that it becomes more complex and at the same time it begins to have a tendency just looking at the scenes you could watch the movie without the dialogue and begin to tell okay the camera is trying to tell you that this character has a certain psychological tendency that is becoming exaggerated dominant and moves him in a certain direction as it were signaling your way through the plot so that you it makes the mystery uh, not less mysterious, but more coherent. You can figure out which way you're going, even though you don't know where you're going to end up. And for so many interiors, you wouldn't think that the guy with the camera is going to matter that much. He certainly doesn't do a lot of showy things, but he's so good at his work. It's uh, This is one of those cases where you don't need a specific trick or camera technique to realize that, wow, the man there really is, is, is working. Right, and he's got a good story to tell. Let's talk about the music. Uh, and let me start by telling a story, uh, well-known and true. It is not apocryphal. Uh, Raxon uh, testifies to it. That uh, underlines what I think might be called a negative positive contribution to Laura by Otto Preminger. Uh, he didn't want David Raxon to score the film. Uh, in fact, if memory serves, this is the first important film that David Raxon scored. It's certainly the first one that he got any recognition for. So he was, Raxon was a bleeder. He was one of these people, it's, it's hard for him writing. And he can't come up with a theme for the score. And so as, as the story goes, Preminger calls him in on a Friday and says, look, David, it's not going to work. If you don't have the theme by Monday morning, then we're going to use Duke Ellington's sophisticated lady as the theme for this movie. Because, and this tells you something about how Preminger saw the film, She's a slut. She's a whore. So why not use this jazz tune? Well, Raxon, who came from the world of, of jazz and big band music, I mean, he certainly appreciated Ellington, but he also knew that that wasn't what he wanted to write. He was in the middle of having a, a either a marriage or a relationship. I can't remember which it was. Yeah. His wife him. separated from him. Right. So he's in a, an extremely distressed state. He goes home. And he comes back with the main theme for Laura, which is one of the most extraordinary melodies ever to be written for any film in or out of Hollywood. Extraordinary because it's, it's beautiful, it's indelible, but also it's complicated. It's a highly chromatic tune with an ex a very unusual harmonization. It's hard to see how anybody could ever have hummed that tune. And yet, when it was turned into a song with the lyric added by Johnny Mercer, it became a standard, one of the great hit tunes of the 40s, and deservedly so. Uh, and yet the song itself, the complete 32-bar ballad, Laura, is never heard in its entirety in the film, and I don't think that Raxon had actually worked out the end of it. Um, which brings us to the genius of this score. If I were teaching a course in film music, I might well start with Laura, not because it's the greatest film score ever written. It's a very good score, but you know, it's not as great as Vertigo, just to take one example. It's very, very good, but it's also exemplary in any number of ways of what film music does for a film. The use of the music is ingenious. It's highly dramatic. It underlines, it articulates the, the dramatic arc of the film. 
with great creativity. Uh, so to go over some of the ways in which it does this, to begin with, this is what's called a monothematic score. Uh, every piece, every piece of underscoring in the film, and most of the source music as well that was written by Raxon, is the Lara theme. Uh, this is very unusual for, for movies. I mean, they uh, they hit their main theme pretty hard. I mean, listen to Gone with the Wind and you'll see how that works. But to have a monothematic score is really unusual, so much so that uh, when John Williams scored uh, Robert Altman's uh, remake of The Long Goodbye, uh, he did the same thing to the point where when you pushed a doorbell in the, the movie, it played the theme music. It's a parody of Laura. Uh, but we don't notice it that way in the film. The reason why we don't is because... Since we never see Lara until well into the film, except in flashback, but we're told about her. We're told how beautiful she is, how charismatic she is, how extraordinary a woman she becomes under uh, Waldo Lidecker's tutelage. It is the theme that describes her to us, that gives her depth. Uh, and the more we hear it, the more we become identified with that music as the idea of Lara. And in the pivotal scene of the film, the, the hinge of the film, in which uh, Dana Andrews is alone with a painting of Laura, and suddenly Laura herself appears, very significantly, uh, this theme is used to underscore the scene up to the moment when Laura comes into the room. And then the music stops. And we do not hear the Laura theme again until uh, uh, much, much later in the film when underscoring itself returns but it's just, it, the score is telling us something which is that the real Lara is here now so we do not need the idealized Lara of music that's a dramatic masterstroke and yet we don't know who's responsible for it and we will not know who's responsible until primary research is done on the making of Lara because what's called spotting uh, the decision to where a film has underscoring and where it isn't it can be made by the composer. It can be made by the director, the producer, sometimes even the music editor. Uh, we don't know who it was who said, okay, when Laura shows up, pull the music. And we don't want to hear her theme again until much later on. Uh, and yet, that is a dramatic masterstroke. It's just an extraordinary thing. It serves the drama of the film profoundly in every possible way. But who thought of it? Who thought of it? That's one of the, the reasons why the auteur, the auteur theory of filmmaking is fundamentally defective, because we simply don't know enough in most cases to, to be able to ascribe to a specific person or persons uh, the decision-making process that leads to uh, choices like this. And yet, exactly. it's, it's one of the, the most marvelous things about the film. Uh, what can be said about the score is that it's gorgeous, and never more so than in this particular scene in which uh, uh, Dana Andrews is alone with a portrait of Laura. And this, this fantastically uh, mysterious music is being played, derived from the melody. Uh, you, you get completely caught up in its mystery. Uh, it's, well, as I say, if, if I were going to teach film music, if I were going to try to show students how you use it to articulate, to heighten, uh, to intensify the drama of a film. You couldn't do much better than Laura to show what techniques are available to the composer and the director. Um, 
time and again, this film is defined by the quality of its score. Um, and yet, it's not just a film score that has a film playing along with it. It, it. it would play differently if it had been scored by somebody else. And I have a feeling that if uh, Raxon had been forced to use sophisticated lighting, it would have wrecked the film. Uh, it just, it certainly wouldn't have had the quality that it has now. So uh, who made that decision? It was, it was Raxon who made it by coming up with a great theme that, that even uh, Preminger couldn't turn his back on. But uh, in what way is this a decision, an altruistic decision by anybody involved in the process? Uh, yeah. it, it's With just, Laura, it's easier to see how the parts fit together than what the overall intention was. Yeah. And I think it's it's a good example of how we should be thinking of authorial intention precisely so that we can grasp the whole of the thing. But we cannot, from that, figure out which specific a man or woman made which specific decision because movies don't work out that way for the most part. There are some exceptions. There are men who are in control of the work to an astounding degree that, in fact, normal people wouldn't even suspect because right. it, you have to be a little crazy and obsessive to go that far, not just rich and powerful, let's say. Right, they're, they're but most of the time, you have to rely on certain agreements between the, the different people who work on it, and those disagreements include dealing with massive disagreements, like, say, trying to get your music man fired, or right. Right. So, you know, taking think... over somebody else's movie. So these are... in, in stage direction in the United States, we we see this in a clearer way. Uh, the auteur is the playwright. The stage director is called in to put the script on stage, uh, to put together a creative team, to coordinate uh, their activities and, and to give a general direction to the production. And then the next production is completely different because it has a completely different director. Uh, in Europe, of course, stage directors, uh, are increasingly allowed to think of themselves as primary creative forces. Uh, film it lacks that kind of definition. Sometimes it has it. I mean, when you see a film by John Sayles, he edited it as well as, as uh, writing and directing it. Uh, uh, when you see a film by Whit Stillman, uh, that's Whit Stillman's film. Yep. When, you see, when you see Laura, it is a lot harder to say whose film is this. And I think ultimately the best answer to that is it's just Laura. Uh, it is a, it's a totality that came together under the unique circumstances of the studio system, led by uh, Otto Preminger, but not, and thus signed by him, but not created by him from the ground up. You can't one thing, you can't read the novel. You can't read f fifteen pages of the novel without knowing that even though its dialogue has not been taken over literally and used with the film, uh, the film is emanating from the mind of Vera Caspery, um, who created Waldo Lidecker as a character and found his voice. Um, uh, all the more reason just to remember that when you're trying to decide who's responsible for a film, uh, if you're serious about wanting to answer this question, start with the source material. Yes, yes, it's, we, we like movies, they arrest us, they, they gobsmack us, they seize us, and that tends uh, to, to make us ignore uh, who, who's behind pulling the strings, and if we sometimes think far enough to the director, we rarely think far back enough to the writer, or writers, depending on the case, but 
it's uh, but but if you try for yourself to explain why you love a movie th the importance of the story and and what is co to, at the core of the story will come out and thus again the the importance of having a writer he's rarely in hollywood the author really of the movie but he's the source and the, yeah, it's, it's rarely that the move it's rare that the movie overcomes its source it's funny that in studio system hollywood they very often seems to, seem to have thought of plot and dialogue as separate entities. Uh, you came up with the plot, uh, and it was sound or it wasn't sound. And then you, you superimposed dialogue on it. And it was, uh, especially in film noir, which is known for its, its snappy wisecracks and comebacks, uh, this, is, this is something that quite literally can be superimposed on it. Uh, does it arise from character in the best ones it does. I mean, in Dumbledore, Dumbledore Indemnity is full of fabulous dialogue, but it's very important to recognize that that dialogue is plot-driven and character-driven. It emerges from the characters in such a way that you believe that it's the sort of thing they would have said. This is also true in Laura, not to as, as highly developed a degree, uh, but you have no difficulty believing that this man, this fictional man named Waldo Lidecker, talked that way and said those things uh, they are consistent with our sense of who he is uh, who's responsible for them again uh, with with three credited screenwriters an uncredited screenwriter and a source novel that is a very important part of, of the creation of the film that's just not a question that can be easily answered uh, especially when the dialogue is delivered in so distinctive a way as it's delivered by Clifton Webb and Dana Andrews, and let us not forget um, uh, Vincent Price, who is is doing something very tricky in Laura. He is playing a weak man in an interesting way. Always one of the hardest things for an actor to do well, and Price happened to be quite good at it. Yeah, uh, we, think of, we think of him now as a horror movie boogeyman, uh, a campy horror movie boogeyman. In fact, he had quite a distinguished stage career uh, before and after Laura. Uh, and uh, his his films may not even be the best of him. We just don't know. Uh, but he's off. He's awfully good in this one. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's big. He's handsome, and at the same time, insinuating. Now, yes. when you're six four, insinuating is really hard to do. <laughs> and uh, the uh, and and aside from that, he's uh, uh, given to self reflection. He's a man, in him you see with, with his face and with his motions, his every quip reveals a certain weakness in his character. And, and you see his ambivalence to his own situation. He knows society has done wrong by him, he also knows he has done wrong by society. These things come out in the characterization. They didn't have. There was no requirement that they do. You don't get paid less or what have you. You don't get less famous. It's, it's just what a good actor will do if he thinks through his character and wants to inhabit it. To make right. it available to others who haven't gone through his process, They you only get the surface, literally the film. And if the actor really has something to bring out, that that suffices. You can... you. That's not a character you care for much in the f the first time you see the movie, but b because of the way it ends, if you watch it the second time, and being that it's so beautiful, you're likely to watch it the second time. Very much then so. you begin to see that, yeah, when you listen to this guy talk, 
he makes a lot more sense than you would have granted at first and and you know, this goes further as depth of characterization you begin to see why Laura might love him mm-hmm. why you somebody know, might uh, expend affection on on such a person and take him seriously we've, and we've gotten this far in the discussion and we haven't even mentioned the fact that Judith Anderson is also in this film who not well remembered today except for her occasional film appearances but she was one of the best known and most important stage actors of the United States. I mean, Dame Judith Anderson, as she was known back then. Uh, we think of our, we think of her now as as uh, an actor who played nasty, scary women. And in Laura, she plays an extremely ungrateful role, which is the well-to-do woman who has been keeping Shelby uh, and who seems as sexually equivocal as he does. So what's going on there? Uh, and she makes quite an impression uh, in this film as well, in this entirely secondary role. It's a, it's a mark of the best studio system films that they had this depth of casting where the secondary roles are played with, with the same distinction and in individuality as the starring roles. Uh, and when, when you've got Judith Anderson playing a, a secondary role like that, you know that something interesting is going to be going on in the background, and it most certainly was. Yeah, these five actors dominate the movie. There is one sixth actress who who appears in a few scenes, important, the maid, but not uh, crucial to the plot. But you, you see each character as you would on the stage, how distinctive they are, how they carry their character, through the stages of the plot, through the arc, all the way to the end, and you, you, when you watch the movie, you never feel that there's somebody on stage who shouldn't be. Right. And there's somebody who's doing something that shouldn't be in the scene. They know what they're doing, where they should be, each one himself, each in relation to the others. It's, it makes, it, it makes so much of the art of the movie invisible simply because things work out so well. Mm-hmm. It's... I wonder if, if, I don't know the answer to this, if it was ever originally contemplated that uh, Laura be a stage play, uh, or if there was a subsequent stage adaptation, because back then it was quite common for, for a successful film to have a stage version made of it, which would be done by amateur actors, and might even make it to Hollywood, or it might even make it to Broadway. Um, uh, it's not hard to imagine how Laura could work on the stage. Um, uh, it wouldn't require that large a cast. Uh, the sets would be a bit of a problem, but uh, it would fit very nicely. The thing is that you don't need it because you have this, yes. this, this film, which I don't see how you could improve this film uh, on its own terms for what it is, uh, a romantic mystery, a genre film. I don't see anything wrong with it at all. There is, if there are any flaws in Laura, they have not been correct. They've not been convincingly drawn to my attention. Yes, that's that's again part of the art of the movie. I'm I don't know if it's perfect, but it makes a pretty damn good impression, doesn't it? It sure does. We're still watching it. I mean, this is still a very popular film. We, I haven't seen it for a year or two, and so I I I, I was refreshing my memory about it and went to YouTube and found a. There were two posted uh, complete versions of the film, both of which have been pulled off YouTube for copyright violation in the last 48 hours. 
So obviously, oh, wow. yeah, people are still watching Laura and wanting to watch it. And 20th Century Fox is still guarding its copyright. <sighs> and here I am with the pirates. I say, if the people want Laura, let them have it. It is. It's. It was made in 1944. It's. What more can you hope for than that people want to see it that badly and to share it with others who also love it? And and also, uh, pop singers, jazz singers, and jazz musicians are still playing and singing that extraordinarily beautiful and poetic song. Uh, who's? Uh, it always amazes me that Johnny Mercer's lyric is not part of the film uh, because it's one of his most inspired creations and yet it was created entirely after the fact as a commercial entity existing to promote the film score uh, there's another one of the miracles of american popular art that, that out of such base materials comes poetry and yes exactly and, and laura the song and laura the film both have i think a genuinely uh, in their popular way, they have a genuinely poetic quality. They they tell a story that has aspects of myth that really resonates with the American experience. Um, uh, whether or not Laura really is a film noir, it hooks up with the the, the what noir tells us about the American national character. Um, you know, we haven't even talked about the feminist aspects of it. I mean, this is a this is a rich film. We could talk. We could talk yes. for another hour about everything that's in Laura, and I don't think we would have exhausted it. It's, Indeed, it's and I hope our, our, our audience see that movie again. Talk to somebody who has seen it. You will find so many more things to talk about. And you'll see this is, uh, you know, middle brow is incredibly... Uh, rich art it is not just defensible intellectually or historically it is personally rewarding you see that a genre picture well done says so much about america says so much about the things we love that bring us to the stories says so much about how we think about actors and why some of them become stars it's not that every star deserved it or everyone who didn't become a star didn't deserve it. It's that with the ones who did, you can recognize that we were on to something as an audience. We learn things about ourselves in the things we love as well. Yes. And it's all of these things coming together. It's Had there been a, a man in charge of everything, taking everything under control and coming out something perfect, it would have been less surprising than what we really had, which is talent all the way past the movie, as with Johnny Mercer coming together and g coming up with such a rich whole. This is, it's, it's astounding and so pleasurable. It's, it, it ends up contributing to, the, to, to jazz music as well. Yes. Sinatra loved this song precisely because it's so good at bringing out the, the part of him that he he's learned to hide, Sinatra reinvented himself as a noir character, as as Humphrey Bogart actually. Right? Well said, well said. But and uh, it, he, he learned to hide he made the sentimentality. I'm sorry, he made the most beautiful of all records of it, uh, uh, accompanied by Gordon Jenkins and yes, the '57 recording, I and I think the last one of his four. I think is. so. Popular art that tells us things about ourselves. That's what movies do. That's what popular, great popular songs do. Uh, and that's why they get under our skin and stay with us. And why we're still thinking about them decades after the fact and still enjoying them.
and we hope this is why we're doing this this is why we're trying to curate the culture we are we have this legacy it's up to us to inherit it because it's so enjoyable and at the same time it will speak to our hearts again yes. it is the it is preferable and more civilized more gentle really than attempts to scrutinize our own conscience or those of others which are very often done in fear or anger and certainly with little charity with with uh, these movies we we can come to understand ourselves for better in, in the element of the beautiful I like that. I like that. And Laura is, it's a beautiful movie about a beautiful woman who is surrounded by great evil. Um, what's not to like? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How could we not? How could we not love her and love the story? How could we not? It seems like a good place to uh, wrap this up, I think. Um, yes. Thank you for joining me again. It has been a lovely conversation, and perhaps we should yeah. find more noir movies to talk about. Always glad to talk about movies and about noir. I mean, I, it puzzles me why I love it so much, being a perfectly regular guy. Maybe it's the Dana Andrews in me. <laughs> it's a good point. A very good point. The every man discovers his passion for heroism there, and his potential for heroism, and of course for damnation. Right. I recently saw that you've been watching again Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter. Perhaps yeah. we could do that. I think it's... that would be great. That is a great masterpiece, never sufficiently to be discussed. Let us meet electronically at another time and talk yes. about that superb film. Thank you again, and enjoy the rest of your day. All the best. I intend to. <laughs>